I loved Riverdance and I didn't want to lose that feeling and that respect for it. I wanted to leave there on a good, positive note because I had seen people who had stayed in the show too long. I didn't want that for me. Welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast, focused on helping you reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers. We talk through their unique personal journeys, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to share her story of going from a professional dancer to an artist. We'll discuss deciding where to invest your energies and the realities of embarking on any new career path. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll share my thoughts on figuring out the right moment to move on from your current job. When things are kind of bumpy in your career, or you're feeling really dissatisfied about how your job is going, the decision about whether to make a career change may seem a bit more obvious. But what about those times when things are going well in your career, but you just have other career interests you've been wanting to pursue but haven't gotten around to pursuing? Do you keep riding the wave and continue in a comfortable career where you already have a proven track record of success? Or do you make the leap and try something else? Today, I'm speaking with Ashling Drennan, who used to be a professional Irish dancer with Riverdance, performing internationally for almost a decade. But with her sketchbook and paint box in her suitcase, always had an interest in art. Originally from County Clare, Ireland, both of her parents danced, and she was surrounded by dance and music growing up. So it seemed very natural for her to dedicate her early life touring around the world and dancing professionally. But she eventually began a gradual, steady career transition into the world of art, and in 2012, Ashling relocated to London to complete her master's degree in fine art at Central St. Martin's. She's now a full-time abstract expressionist painter, balancing her artistic endeavors with motherhood after the birth of her son in early 2022. Her work has been featured at the Royal Cambrian Academy of Arts annual exhibition, Gordon Ramsay's new restaurant in the Savoy Hotel in London, and as Fujitsu's featured artist for a global media campaign. So I know we haven't featured a ton of artists on this podcast in the past, so I thought getting Ashling onto the show could provide a unique behind-the-scenes glimpse into the world of stage performance and what it takes to turn your creative interests into a viable full-time profession. You can get all the show notes from today's conversation at careerrelaunch.net slash 97. Ashling spoke with me from her art studio in London, England. All right. Good morning, Ashling, and welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast. It's great to have you on the show, and I'm really excited to talk with you about your time, both as a dancer and also now as an artist. Good morning, Joseph. I am very pleased to be here chatting with you, and it's always such a pleasure when people have an interest in what I do. So thank you. Well, let's jump into it. Let's talk, first of all, about what you have been focused on right now in your career and your life. What has been keeping you busy, both personally and also professionally? I've just finished a new series of paintings and they were just shown last weekend because uh, I've got a studio at Delta House Studios in Southwest London and we do open studio events twice a year. So one in June, one in October, where everybody can come along, meet the maker, see where the work is made. So I was finishing new work for that. So that's been pretty busy. And then I have a couple of things coming up career wise. I'm doing the other art fair at the end of the month. Um, I've got a couple of shows lined up for the winter and a few fun things in between. And then personally, things are good. I have a one year old. It's keeping me very busy. I suppose I've had a big life change and been pregnant and giving birth and having a baby and coming back into work and finding all that balance. So it's been a real... um roller coaster but in the best way and sort of finding my feet again I guess you lose your identity a bit and then you come back into it and I feel like I've just come back into finding my identity getting back into painting back into the studio and getting everything moving again so yeah two questions on a couple things you just mentioned there so first of all you mentioned your new mother what have you found to be the biggest challenge around balancing parenting with your work as an artist I have my own business 
So if I'm not working it, nobody else is doing it. So I think it was very important to me to get back into the studio and keep things running while I was managing a newborn and, you know, everything that comes along with that so, so much. I think I was probably a wee bit optimistic because I came back into work when my son Kaelin was four months old because I thought it'd be fine. I'll do it. It's grand. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't really work out like that. So I guess that's one of the things I've really learned that like your time is no longer just your time. Your time has to be shared and prioritized with him. And as we, my husband and I have moved along because he has his own business as well, we've managed to juggle. And I think actually that's a real good thing about each of us having our own business. We're not set to somebody else's time. It's purely our time. So we can manage things around the baby, which is quite good. So yeah, that, and I think the identity thing, which I wasn't prepared for because you step into a whole new pair of shoes being a mother and you get lost in that because you're learning so much. And then you come back into your work, which, you know, I love what I do. I've really worked hard to get to where I am. And then you have to find it all again. You have to find yourself. And it's sort of an interesting new path. Like I'm the same person, but I'm different. And I'm still finding my way around that. It is a challenge flipping back and forth between your identity as a mother and also your identity as a professional and being able to go back and forth multiple times within the same day can be quite jarring. Quite jarring. And I think as well, because this is like my studio and my painting, my art practice is my, I don't want to say my other child, (laughs) that sounds the wrong thing, but you know, it's not like I'm going to work for somebody else. Like this is very much mine. So it's all that more important to me that it keeps moving and progressing and developing. But I think in the long term, that's going to be such a good lesson for Kaelin as he grows up and he sees what me and his dad do because my husband's an architect, so he has his own practice as well and his own studio. So I think it'll all be good, but we're just finding our way, which is exciting as well. I mean, look, this is the essence of life, isn't it? You just figure it all out as you go. Well, I want to get back into also your professional life here. And I know you mentioned you're an artist. What kind of artist are you and what do you enjoy doing as an artist? I am an abstract expressionist painter. My work would be rooted in the materiality of paint. So that would mean like just literally getting stuck into the wonderful nuances of paint and what you can do with it and how you can play with it and manipulate it. I won an art residency in 2019 that completely changed the direction of my work. So all my work is now based on rock landscapes, extracting from those spaces. So these are landscapes back in Ireland. Obviously, I'm from Ireland. You can tell by my accent. I go and sit on site and make studies and bring them back into my studio here in London and literally abstract from them. So it's a very um, processed way of working and because I've just finished this new series of work, I'm still finding my feet with discussing it, which is a weird thing because you think of it all visually in your head and then you have to vocalize that when you're talking about it. So it's an ongoing thing. I think art is probably one of the hardest things to describe in words to others. Just by definition, it is difficult to put into words. Well, that's why, like what I mentioned at the top of the conversation, something like open studios is great because you get people coming into your studio and you see their reaction straight off or they ask you questions that you may not have considered yourself. So it's a wonderful way to interact with the work and with people and build those relationships. And, you know, if you're selling through a gallery, you don't get that same conversation or connection, let's say. So it was wonderful with this new series of work to have people come in and sort of look at it differently to how I'm looking at it. Well, I do want to come back to the commercial dynamics of being an artist. You mentioned gallery versus studio versus art show. So we, I do want to get back into that toward the end of the conversation. Right now, what I'd be very interested in doing is going back in time, because I know you haven't always been an abstract expressionist painter. You were once a professional Irish dancer. Can you tell us a little bit about your life as a dancer. And I suppose the best place to start here is to talk about where you grew up and what are some of the things you remember about your childhood growing up in Ireland? Oh gosh, I had an amazing childhood in Ireland. I grew up in rural West Coast Ireland, County Clare, North County Clare, so right on the Atlantic Ocean. And just very free, very open, very fresh childhood. 
And typically, I don't know if it's the same now, but growing up in, you know, 80s Ireland, like everyone who went to school, there would be an Irish dancing teacher that would come into the school and teach the basics. It was sort of like your physical education in a sense. But both of my parents were dancers, so they brought my sisters and I along to Irish dancing classes. And that's where it began, really. Were they professional dancers? No, it's the type of thing, um, particularly, I think, like where I'm from in Ireland. My parents are both from the west of Ireland as well. And culturally, it would be very normal that like somebody would dance or somebody would sing or play an instrument or something like that. So like my parents had a hotel and a bar. So there was always music and dancing and something performative going on. And you were just always expected to get up and do it, whatever you were able to do. So my parents were both dancers, so there was always dancing in the bar. So I just grew up with it very naturally, which is totally normal for that part of Ireland, really. Yeah, so then I started going to Irish dancing classes and started competing. And at the time, I mean, there was absolutely no sense of being professional and professional Irish dancer. What is that? No. And then, of course, in 1994, Riverdance arrived on the scene at the Eurovision um, Song Contest, and it just changed the landscape like massively. And I was 12, I think, when Riverdance was on the Eurovision. I remember watching it with my family because it was such a big thing in Ireland, the Eurovision. I want to do that. What is it? I want to do it. I want to know more. Riverdance obviously went international and they started to audition people. So I auditioned when I was 16 and I got in. I left school for a year to go on tour. For those not familiar with Riverdance, it's this big theatrical show that features traditional Irish music and dance. It's sort of like the quintessential Irish dance show. And as I understand it, and as you alluded to, it was originally this interval act at Eurovision. And then it turned into this huge stage show production in the early 90s. And now it's been seen by over something like 25 million people and considered to be one of the most successful dance productions in the world. So kind of a phenomenon. Could you just explain the audition process to get in there? Thinking about the phenomenon of it, like for just anyone who's not aware of it, like I think I performed in over 400 cities, 50 countries over all the continents. And that was over so many years, just literally touring and touring and touring. So it was big, big, big. So yeah, the audition process was, it's something something that I still think about now because I learned so much on that day. It was in Dublin. I got the train up with my mum from uh, Limerick up to Dublin and the train broke down on the way up. And of course, I was really stressing because we were going to be late for the audition. And my mom rang the dance director and said, we're so sorry, the train is broken down. She said, don't worry, there's other people on the same train. They're coming too. So there was me and I think three or four other girls. And we were all late going into the audition because of the train. And we walked into this massive dance studio, you know, lined with mirrors and everyone is dressed in black with their number after auditioning and we're the last ones to come in. So we have to audition in front of hundreds of other girls and boys. And I just remember thinking, oh gosh, this is so hard. And who I think two of the girls that I auditioned with were champions. One was a champion in the year above me, going back to the competitive side. And one was the champion of my age group, if I remember correctly. And they didn't both get in. I got in. But it was just something that I thought about sort of on reflection that like not everybody can always be the champion and you don't always win everything and you just have to be your own champion if that makes sense it was something that I learned from that process like because I remember feeling very intimidated like going in with champion dancers and you know I had done quite well competitively but I hadn't won like major titles or anything like that and I was late going into the audition and it was just like a complete oh god this is the worst day of my life you know at 16 when everything is so dramatic of all days yeah yeah so I got in and um what happened at the time was you started doing workshops which were oh my god unbelievably hard I remember coming out of them and just not being able to walk like my feet were full of blisters and my legs were killing me and it was just a whole different level of training to what I had had competitively like in my dancing school and then what they do is 
at the time it's different now but at the time they would send you out on like corporate gigs so like you know like I was 16 in school and I've been flown here there and everywhere to go and perform at all these very fancy events and then sitting back down on a Monday morning you know well Ashley how was your weekend grand I was over dancing at you know the Golden Globe Awards and they used like just meeting all these people it was mad like but it was great fun like so how did um, that work with school because you're 16 you are I guess for a normal child who's not performing you'd be going to classes every day and kind of doing whatever you want on the weekend how did that work with balancing school and being on tour with this huge company I don't know, like I grew up in a very rural, very small part of Ireland and like it's not like there was a whole load of other distractions, do you know what I mean? Like I used to go to school and then I would come home and have a snack and I would practice my dancing and then I would do my homework and that was kind of my day to day and then I would be competing on the weekends. So now it was just like, oh, I might be doing a gig, like flying off somewhere to do a gig. And it was just, I don't know, it just rolled into it. And I was the youngest of three. So like I have two older sisters, right? Yeah, I have two older sisters and one of my sisters ended up in Lord of the Dance, which was like oh, another, another big one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for my parents, they were just we were just always busy dancing. Like it was kind of just I don't know. You just do it, don't you? And were you thinking that this is what you were going to do after you finished secondary school or what was running through your head during the early years? We'll get to the later years in a moment, but just the early years as a child dancing what were you thinking how did you think this was going to go how did you want it to go for you or did you even think about that I've always been really focused and sort of just knew from a very early age what I wanted to do and I just knew I wanted to get into river dance and then I wanted to go to art school and that was it and I didn't want to do anything else and luckily it's worked out that way because I know a lot of people it can take time to really find what they want to do and find their place but I was just very focused and just started to put the points in place that I needed to make that happen. And was there a reason why you wanted to be dancing as part of the show instead of just going straight to art school, if that was what you had wanted to do long term? I mean, I knew there was a window for being a professional dancer. I knew I could go to art school at any time. And I had like on finishing school, I had got my place at art school. So I knew, OK, I'll just defer that for a couple of years and I'll go on tour. And I didn't know how long I wanted to tour or anything, but my God, it was just an unbelievable experience. And in hindsight has fed so much into my art practice because I was traveling the world. I was getting paid for it. I was so young. I was on tour with great friends and all the rest of it. I always had my sketchbook in my suitcase and my box of paints and I would always go and see like the museums or the galleries or checkout shows because I wanted to educate myself. And because I was in these places, you know, for example, like in Mexico City, I went to Frida Kahlo's house, like Casa oh, wow. Azur. I mean, and then to fast forward a couple of years when I was studying art to, and that coming up in the lecture and I was like, oh, God, I was there. Like I saw it. I knew I was very privileged to have all these experiences that have fed into my art career and that educated me. It was the starting point of my education as an artist. What was a typical month like for you as a dancer on this global tour that you were on? Well, it depends on what company you're in because Riverdance had like, was it two or three full-time companies? So there was one company that would tour America sort of months on end. And then there was another company that would do Europe. And then there would be a company doing like Australia and Asia. So it depends on which company you were put into. And then you might have like a month-long residency somewhere, or you might be moving every two weeks, again, depending on which company you were in. Typically, it would be week by week. Before you would go out on tour, you would do all your rehearsals in Dublin and then you would be flown out to where you go. And then there would be more rehearsals set up before the opening city, uh, the opening night. And then everything just goes to plan because, you know, everyone knows what they're doing. And yeah. What do you remember about life as a professional dancer? And let's talk about both the highs and the lows. The highs, I think definitely I'll never forget the electricity of doing the final choreography to the, what I think now is quite iconic, the music of Riverdance. Da, 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 and the lights going up and the audience standing up and everyone cheering and just feeling that 
electricity. It was just amazing. And I used to think, my God, I'm this girl from a very small part of Ireland and look at me on Broadway or look at me, I don't know, in Tokyo, wherever it was like, and making all these people stand up and feel happy and amazing and bring them along this wonderful journey. That was amazing. I thought that it still stays at me. Lowe's, uh, I don't know, I guess sometimes it was hard because you were living out of a suitcase for months and months on end and you might miss family events or the environment sometimes was a little bit tricky because, you know, you were all together all the time, like you were working and eating and socializing and, you know, sometimes it was a lot. But I think it was a really good life lesson in managing friendships and learning how to deal with people because we were all quite young as well and finding our feet. So, but I mean, overall, it was an absolute highlight. Absolutely. One of the things, Ashling, I've always wondered about, I suppose, as somebody in the audience watching any show is these are, and you were, up there every day, every night after night, day after day. I'm assuming performing the same exact choreography pretty much for every show. Did that ever get repetitive? Or this is not meant to be a leading question. I've always just genuinely wondered if it feels repetitive or not, just because you're just in the zone when you're up there. Yeah, because I've often wondered about like, um, I don't know, Britney Spears, does she ever get sick of singing Hit Me Baby one more time? Exactly. (laughs) Like, can you really bring the same energy on day one as day 200? I don't know. I think I just always, I just loved it. I really loved it. I mean, if I was still doing it now, I think I'd feel fairly lethargic about doing the same choreography over and over. The music was always amazing. And, you know, I was with my mates. I was in my twenties. For some people, it maybe became a little bit repetitive, but no, for me, I just loved it. I still love it. Like, so, and I hope I will always dance. I don't really dance so much anymore. Obviously, I'm a bit past it. The last time I properly danced was our wedding. And that was amazing because I had all my friends from Riverdance there and we all got up and did Riverdance. And, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I was the entertainment at my own wedding. So <laughs> yeah. well, that's a good wedding to go to, yeah. Yeah, but it was amazing for all the guests, obviously. And like, I, I loved that I had, you know, those friends, like we literally grew up on the road together and we're still really good friends and we're all having kids now and we're living in different parts of the world, but like we're still connected. And I think that's so special and I'll have those relationships for the rest of my life. And I have them only because of Riverdance. Like I owe so much to Riverdance and I mean, really, I owe so much to my parents because they took me to Irish dancing classes and they took me to competitions, which then led me to audition for Riverdance. And then Riverdance gave me this whole opportunity, which has fed into my art career now. So like, you know, everything has this linked up effect that one thing is fed into other, all creatively as well, which is lovely. It sounds like this was an amazing experience and probably one that was very coveted and sought after and that many kids would probably really enjoy in many ways. And I guess if you're going to be a dancer, then this is one of the shows to be in. At what point did you decide that you needed to or wanted to start exploring something else and maybe revisiting the idea of pursuing art? I wanted to go to art school and study it. And my mum was an artist, so I had grown up around that context. I do clearly remember I was on an American tour. We had a residency in Boston for a month. And um, every morning in the hotel, they would drop the newspapers at my door. So I used to take the paper and I bring it down to the dressing room before the show, sitting in the theater, doing my hair and makeup, and I'd be flicking through the paper, what's going on in the world. And in the art section, there was a caption saying, leave the stage before the stage leaves you. And it just resounded with me straight away. And it was an interview with Prima Ballerina, who was retiring. And I just, I don't know, something just clicked. Like I... I loved Riverdance and I didn't want to lose that feeling and that respect for it. So I wanted to leave the stage before the stage left me. So I wanted to leave the stage like on a high with all the love I have for it, rather than just staying there for like the lifestyle or the money or just because my friends were there. I wanted to leave there on a good positive note because I had seen people who had stayed in the show too long And they weren't very happy and they were a bit negative and things like that. And I I just didn't want that for me. 
So that was the point. I knew that that would be my last tour. And that tour was eight months long. And I was like, right, I can do this. And then, all right, I'm going to go back to the art school and just say, I'm going to come next September. And that was it. This is such a hard decision, right? Like on the one hand, I guess you could argue it either way. You're at your best and you're at your high as a dancer or in any profession. And do you just keep going or do you leave while you're ahead and I think that's a real big challenge for a lot of people deciding when to leave. Deciding when to leave. Like, but I think sometimes things just fall into your lap, you know, and sometimes something will hit you and you just have to go with your gut. And something I've learned more and more the older I get, like to trust your gut and instinct on things like this. Like I could have stayed there just touring and touring and touring, but then I wouldn't have been happy. And I think I would have, I don't know, sort of got the fear of it about what I was going to do next and all that. So I feel quite lucky that I had the balls essentially to just go, right, I could have stayed. I was very happy there. They were happy with me. Contracts were coming in. It was all good. But like made the decision and just stuck with it and went for it. And as I understand it, you went back and did an undergraduate in fine arts. And then you also eventually did a master's degree in fine art, but you were still touring at the time. Is that right? How did that, again, I guess going back to my original question, how did that work out? Because you're- work or no <laughs> so I had a really good relationship with Riverdance so when I said I was going to go to art school they said great and then basically they offered me work for every summer holiday or Christmas holiday or like sporadic weeks here and there where I would go back on tour which was amazing for me because I was a student so I was going back on tour making money coming back at, into uni and you know doing what I needed to do. And it just kept me going, basically. And when I finished my undergrad, I took a year off between doing my master's degree. So I went back on tour for a year to make money to do my master's degree. So thanks to Riverdance, I have no student debt, which is really great. <laughs> Another benefit. <laughs> I remember we were talking last time and while you were a student, you did take up a few side jobs, if I remember correctly. Oh. Waitressing, dog walking. Everything, PA. like... Like, I mean, initially when I left Riverdance and I started in my undergrad in Galway um, on the West Coast of Ireland as well, like in Riverdance, we had this amazing lifestyle. Like we, there would be opening parties and closing parties and champagne and caviar and all the rest of it. To being a student where it was like beans on toast and, you know, <laughs> crap wine on a Wednesday night or something like that. Like it was a massive change, you know, but it was really good fun and I was up for it and all the rest of it. And then, yeah, when I came to London to do my master's degree, you know, I really had to hustle, like, because London is very expensive. I was a student, you know, I was on my own. I didn't really know anyone here. So I was very determined, though, and I had got my place at Central St. Martin's, which I was so happy about because it's an art school that I had really admired. And I was thinking about this recently that there was a point, my master's degree was two years. And in the second year of my master's degree, <laughs> I was nannying three children, so I would get up at like 5am, go to their house, get them up for school, get them fed, bring them to school. Then I would go down to my studio at Central St. Martin's for a couple of hours, do my painting work. Then I would go to the library, do my thesis work. Then I would come back, pick the kids up from school until like do their dinners, everything leave them at 7 p.m. Then I would go to my waitressing job and waitress to like, I don't know, 11, 12 o'clock. And then I had to walk a dog because I was living in a house with a very good rent. But the deal was I had to mind the dog. So I was always walking the morning walk and the evening walk and all the rest of it. Like so. And now I look back at it and I think, Jesus Christ, how did I do that? It was so much. But I think... It was just sheer tenacity. Like I was so determined to keep this going and to make it happen. And at the time in the first house with the dog that I lived with, there was also, it sounds like a joke. There was me, the artist, there was an actress and a comedian. And we used to all rotate around this dog to, because the man who owned the house was a BBC rugby commentator. So he was always going off on rugby tours and we would mind the dog. And it was just really funny. But like, it was really good for me to be living with other creators because we were all you know, struggling to find our way a bit. And, you know, I would miss out on an exhibition and they would miss out on an audition and we'd sit down and have a glass of wine and have a moan about it, you know, with the dog and all that kind of thing. <laughs> you hustle and you find your way to start off because it is hard, you know, getting going and starting off, especially in London. I also want to talk about your time as an abstract painter. So 
let's talk about your journey because you finish up school, you decide you want to be an artist. What were the early days like for you? And where were you doing your art? How did the logistics of all this work out as you're starting off as an artist? What, like, what do you do? I graduated in Central St. Martin's in 2014. And I came bouncing out of art school and went, yay, this is great. I've got my master's degree. And then went, oh, God, how am I going to make this work? Should I stay in London? Do I need to go back to Ireland? Where do I want to be? And I think in art school, it's this amazing environment and everyone's on the same wavelength and it's just full of creativity. And there's so much going on between fine art and fashion and creative writing because there's all these different departments and this buzz of creativity and then you come out and you go oh Christ where do I start let's just say there isn't a whole lot of focus on professional practice in that sense I took some time just to gather myself a bit I was still living in the house with the dog so that was great and I was still nannying so I was able to keep myself taking over and then I thought right I'm going to stay in London I'm going to give it a go and see what happens and I started looking for an art studio, which was just impossible. Like I just was not able to pay for rent on my living and pay for rent on a studio. But then one of the girls I had studied with was a waitress as well. And her boss had an old kebab shop that was no longer in use. So he said we could have it for free. It was on the Holloway Road if we wanted it. And we said, yeah, let's go for it. And my God, it was horrendous. It was freezing. It stank of like oil and chicken and it was dusty, but it was a starting point. And then, you know, this is the way it happens. Like that was my first studio in London. It was free starting points. And now I've got the best studio I've ever had. And I love my studio. How long were you at the kebab shop? Maybe almost a year. Like I remember, I remember it had like a big glass front, you know, and people used to be walking up and down every morning going to work and they started to get to know me because they'd see me in there at the wall, you know, painting and they start to wave in at me like, and it would be freezing and I'd have all the layers of clothes on me and everything, you know, but it was, I look back on it now and I think it was a starting point. I stuck it out. It was tough, but look now where I am. I've got this amazing studio and you know, I'll probably stay here for quite a while because it's very hard to get a studio in London. It's a funny story now. That is well. Let's just think, okay, around month 11 of being in the kebab shop, I think one of the things <laughs> that people struggle with when they're embarking on a new journey is the starting few months or years can be really tough and not exactly how you imagine things to be. How did you reconcile that? Was it running through your head? Did it bother you at all? Or were you just feeling like, hey, this is just part of the journey? So I definitely had my moments. And at that point as well, like I was in my early 30s, I was just thinking, this is tough. This is really tough. But at the same time, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. So like you have to start to find that balance and you have to constantly come back to, is this what I want to do? Yes, this is definitely what I want to do. Right. How am I going to make this work? How can I make this a bit better? So then I started like, I don't know, I, I did a load of service jobs so I could make more money. Then I moved into a different studio. Then I started to have some galleries come and visit the studio. My work started getting picked up for like different shows and competitions and things like that. And then you start to understand as well, like you have to think about the long game. Like this is not just going to happen straight away. Like you really have to apply yourself and understand that like this is a lifetime career like I will still be painting in my 90s whatever age I end up being you know and there's no quick fixes around it and as well you need that time because you have to develop your work because the work I was making then is completely different to the work I'm making now the ethos is the same but the work is very different because I've matured the work has matured what has been the most difficult or challenging part of your journey as an artist I think fallibility, actually, understanding that I will make mistakes and I will get it wrong and really embracing that, like embracing them. I think when I was younger, I had a bit of a panic that like, I have to get this right and I'm supposed to know everything, but you don't know everything. You have to figure it out and you have to screw it up because that's how you learn. And I think once I accepted that, and understood that this was about making mistakes, getting it wrong, and it's about time. 
then I was able to progress. And, you know, again, it goes back to that when I was auditioning for Riverdance, like you have to be your own champion. You can't be the champion of everything, but you have to be your own champion for you so you can move forward. Does that make sense? That does make a lot of sense. Yeah. I guess, especially as an artist, you're going to get all sorts of subjective critique coming your way and you're not going to be able to please everybody as an artist. So I guess you have to be that much more self-assured to believe in your work. Yeah, you really have to. And you have to understand that, like even now as a mother, my son is in daycare this morning. So like you have this new added expense, but you have to spend money to make money. So I'm investing in my time by putting him into daycare, which means I can progress, that I will do better. It's always changing as well. I think that's another thing that I've learned as well, that I have to be really flexible, particularly now as a mother. And I think in terms of the work and my paintings development, I had a lecturer in art school who used to always say to me, Ashley, you need to decide where you're going to place yourself as an artist. And I could never understand that. I could never get my head around it, but I understand it now because I'm so much more confident in what I'm doing and the work, I know where to place myself and I know which box, let's say, within the art world I want to put myself into. But it's taken me years to sort of unravel that in my head. Can we also talk about the commercial side of being an artist for a moment? Because you did mention there's a bit of a trade-off here. So obviously you got to invest in the nursery and you've got your bills to pay. There, I think there is probably at least an external perception out there that it's pretty hard to make it successfully in the art world. And in fact, there's this term starving artist. And so can you explain in your own words, what has it taken for you to make it as an artist? When I was in art school, so granted, we're going back a good 10 years now, there was always the hierarchy of the gallery. Whereas now you can have so much more self-autonomy as an artist. You can have so much more control. And I'm not saying that there isn't room for everybody. Of course there is. But I think with the rise in the online art market, something like COVID as well has really reshaped how people buy and sell art. I think now you can really just sell for you like for example like the open studios when people come and meet me they see the work in the studio i sell through my website i sell through instagram and then i do like art shows and i do show with galleries but i'm not exclusive with a gallery because for now i'm not saying i never will but for now i'm quite happy to build it on my own and i find that the more confident i become in my work the more confident i become in like my website development or whatever it is because there's all these other little hats like again in art school they don't teach you professional (laughs) it's all this stuff that you have to learn when you come out contracts and agreements and tax and all that grown-up stuff you know that you have to deal with you go for it again it's the tenacity I want to do this I want to make it work I want to be able to pay for this studio I want to be able to pay for my bills how am I going to do that well I have to get up and talk about my work and tell everyone how great it is because I do think it is great and I'm in this for the long game and I want to build relationships with collectors, which I am doing, which is lovely because they come back and they buy again and again and they say, oh, Ashley, you've changed your palette or you're moving into a different area. So it's wonderful to build that. And I think we're living in the age where like people want that experience as well of if someone buys my work, like they love to be able to say, oh, gosh, this girl is from Ireland and she used to be in Riverdance and now she's an artist. And it's this whole story and Riverdance has influenced her work. And I'm really happy to share that with people. The last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up with an art fair that you're going to be exhibiting at very soon here is just some of the lessons you've learned along the way of your very interesting career change journey. What have you learned about yourself as you have made this pivot from being a professional dancer to now a professional artist? I suppose it would go back again to the idea of tenacity that like I didn't realize, like I always knew I had really good discipline and application from being a dancer like that is just drummed into you and I've been able to carry that forward into my art career which has been brilliant and I think learning that you can cross-pollinate from one creative area into another is a really wonderful thing learning to trust myself more definitely and I think I said this earlier as well like trusting my instinct on things and again that's a confidence thing as you grow and particularly within the arts like because it is also subjective and There isn't like one clear path with it. 
but knowing that you can just follow your own timeline and that's the best way to do it. I think there was a point where I felt like, oh God, I should be doing this because I'm this age. And now I'm kind of like, oh no, not at all. Do it all whatever way I want to do it. Like I never stuck directly to the societal terms around how you should be doing things. But like, I've always pretty much trusted my own gut. Like even when I was 16 going, I just want to get into Riverdance and go to art school. I've always had that attitude of like, no, okay, now I think I'm just going to move to London and go to art school. And then I'm going to make it as an artist. How am I going to do that? I don't know, but I'll figure it out. Like an understanding, you don't know it all. You have to just wing it. And then everything happens for a reason and it will fall into place. Anything in particular surprise you about making a pivot at the point in your life when you did? I think I've reframed a lot of thinking in my head about how to approach things. And that's been really good. And I think I've been very conscious of surrounding myself with good people. And I mean, like, like even in my studio, there's some amazing artists here, but they're also friends and they're people that I can bounce ideas off. People that will help me grow is really good and that's why it's good to have good people around you and my husband is um you know he's super supportive he loves what I do and you know he'll come in and critique what I'm doing and his visual training is different to mine like I said earlier he's an architect his viewpoint is quite different but we'll have really good discussions about it so like all these things add up and help me move along so win-win and if there's somebody out there who is maybe in a job or if they're in a role where they're not quite feeling like they should keep doing it, or maybe the time has come for them to move on, as you were describing before, that they're thinking about leaving the stage before the stage leaves them, but they haven't done it yet. What would you say to that person? Oh, it's so funny, Joseph. I've met so many people, like at art fairs or who come to my studio and they'll say, oh, love to be doing something else I really don't like my work but I love the security of it and I'm just like life is too short do it if it doesn't work out it's okay the world doesn't end I have a friend actually who's been saying to me for about five years I don't want to be doing what I'm doing I'm like do it now because you don't want to be saying this to me in another five years because then 10 years has gone by you know So I would say, do it. Life is for living. You want to do what you love. It's going to be difficult. Of course, it's going to be difficult because nothing is easy. If it is easy, it's boring, right? You want to have a bit of fun with it. Go for it. That's what I'd say. Now, we haven't had a ton of artists on this show. A lot of the people who have been featured have either come from the corporate world or maybe they're in more traditional white collar office jobs. One of the things that you had talked to me about before we started recording was this idea that we need creativity in our lives. What did you mean by that? Okay, I think a good example of that would be the pandemic. When everything shut down, you weren't able to move, to get out, to do anything. I think so many people relied on music or art that was in their house. TV, movies, all that, all those areas of creativity. And actually that's when my sales really went up because people were starting to think I need something to allow escapism, let's say, in my home because I'm here so much. And I think creativity is essential to society. I think we need it. I think it's so important and people always need to remember that because without it, can you imagine life? without any color. I mean, color in the broader sense. What's the point? I want to wrap up with something that I know you've got coming up right around the corner here. Can you tell me a little bit more about the other art fair, which is being held at King's Cross in London from the 29th of June to the 2nd of July? So I'm participating in the other art fair. It's a wonderful fair that's led by artists. So you meet artists on their stand. I will be on stand number 92 and you will see my latest body of work. And if you want more information on that, you can pop over onto my website, ashleandrennan.com. And if you subscribe, I send sporadic emails with any updates like that, that where I'm doing the art fairs or art galleries or open studios or anything like that. So yeah, and make sure you come and tell me that you heard the podcast And let me know what you think. I'd love to meet you. (laughs) All right. So again, that's Stand 92 at the Other Art Fair in King's Cross. 
and we'll be sure to include a link in the show notes with more details about the art fair. Thank you so much, Ashling, for taking the time to tell us about your former life as a professional dancer and now as a professional artist and the importance of deciding where you want to place yourself and just going for it if you're thinking about doing something in your career. So I hope the art fair this week goes well for you and I wish you the best of luck with your art and your business and of course balancing all of this with motherhood. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Ashling's perspectives on deciding when to make a career change, the inevitable difficulty you'll experience when starting anything new, and just allowing yourself to figure things out along the way. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to explain how I think about this decision of exactly when to walk away. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I'd like to thank Audible for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Audible is the premier provider of digital audiobooks offering over 180,000 audiobook titles for listening anytime and anywhere on your favorite device. And for listeners of this show, they're offering a free audiobook download and 30-day trial. Just go to audibletrial.com slash career relaunch to download your free audiobook today. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to pick up on this topic we touched on today about determining when the right moment is to walk away from a successful career to pursue something else. Now, this is something that I and many of my clients and audiences struggle with. Do you cut your losses and quickly move on sooner rather than later? Or do you finish what you started? Do you walk away when you're at the top of your game? Or do you stick things out until you have nothing left to give or gain? And the reason why answering these questions is so hard is because there's not really one right way to go about it. I could really argue it either way. Just to share two quick personal anecdotes from my own career. If you're a longtime listener to this show, you probably already know I used to work as a marketer in the corporate world for many years. And although deep down, about eight years into marketing things like bin liners or drain opener or luxury desserts, I kind of started to feel like my heart just wasn't in marketing like it was at the start of my career. I still struggled to extract myself from the corporate world because the more I invested into it, the more I felt like I needed to keep going. I felt this myself, but I was also being told by colleagues like my manager's manager that I was on a great trajectory in my career. I was regularly told that if I could just keep doing what I was doing, it was only going to be a matter of time before I climbed further up the corporate ladder, which meant more responsibility, more authority, and of course, more money. In the end, I left my corporate marketing job exactly 10 years ago when I was arguably on a reasonably good path, but I just decided that I wanted to invest my energies into something where I could really put my heart into it, which was and still is the work I do now as a career consultant focused on helping others navigate career transitions. The second anecdote relates to this actual podcast. If you're a longtime listener, you may know that in late 2019, I actually decided to stop putting out new episodes of this podcast. As I mentioned in the fall, now that we've come to the end of the year, I'm going to be taking a break from this podcast for at least a little while so I can devote my energies to a new project I'm working on. At the time, I decided to do this partially because of my bandwidth, but also because I actually felt like things were going pretty well with the podcast. I felt like the show had momentum, the content was working, I had energy for the show, and although I had just started to feel like the show was stretching me a bit too thin, I also felt like I wanted to stop while I was ahead and where I could leave things on a good note with the show. Now jump forward four months, the pandemic hit, and suddenly I'm back on the air again. After checking in with clients over the past couple weeks, what's occurred to me is that now people like you, who are probably witnessing your own career and life plans flipping upside down as we speak due to this pandemic, are now more than ever probably in need of some companionship and inspiration, both things I hope the conversations on this podcast can provide you. 
So I've decided to restart the show. So what happened was that I thought I was done with the podcast, at least for a while. But due to the pandemic and my own passion for doing the show kind of just changed my mind. It's not just that I felt like I had more I could give. It's that I had more I wanted to give. There were more stories I wanted to capture and share with others. In both of these cases, you can see that these decisions aren't straightforward. Things may or may not end up as you initially planned, and you may also backtrack. But if you're someone out there wrestling with exactly when the right time is to move on, I just refer you back to what Ashling mentioned earlier in our conversation, to trust your gut, to make the decision that honors what you want for your career, and to rest assured that you don't have to get things exactly right out of the gates every step of the way. You can't always think or reason your way to the best answer. You have to just make a judgment call and trust that you will figure things out along the way, because that's really all you can do. This takes me to a quote from the American filmmaker David Lynch. Intuition is the key to everything. In painting, filmmaking, business, everything. I think you could have an intellectual ability, but if you can sharpen your intuition, which they say is emotion and intellect joining together, then a knowingness occurs. So my challenge to you, if you've been pondering whether now is the right time to pursue another path in your career, is to just decide whether you A, have anything else to gain, B, have more you could give, and C, have more you actually want to give. Because the choice is ultimately yours. I just encourage you to not overextend yourself too much, to not feel like you necessarily have to follow any specific path, and to walk away once you feel that deep down the time is right to move on. If you want to ask me a question about switching career paths or have a story of career change to share yourself, I'd love for you to leave me a voicemail at careerrelaunch.net slash 97, where you can also find a summary of my discussion with Ashling and learn more about the other art show where she'll be exhibiting her work this week in London. I'd also appreciate you leaving a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which helps other people around the world discover the show. Again, you can do all of that at careerrelaunch.net slash 97. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch community. And a very special thanks again to Ashling Drennan for sharing her story with us today from London. This episode was mixed by Liam McKenzie. Today's music was curated by Jonathan rinaldi Pohl, And the Career Relaunch theme song was written and performed by Electrocardiogram. I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll talk to you next time.